Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined virtually today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, and this week, we're speaking with Wayne Kustenbaum, whose new book of essays is called Figure It Out. Okay, so I just want to ask you, the title essay of the book, Figure It Out, is a list of actions. I think there's about 28 of them, maybe. Mm -hmm. And they range in the kind of things that Wayne tells us to do or suggests that we might do. But, you know, it's something like get a stuffed animal and ask it for advice and listen to what it advises you and then thank it for the good advice it gives. Okay, so what I want to ask you guys, Kate and Eric, did you do any of the actions in the essay that were suggested or are you planning on doing any of them? There's one of them that says to cultivate your affinities, not your aversions. So if you don't like a book, try to like it. And I think I genuinely try to do that all the time. Like that's like a default setting for me. But it's definitely something, especially in a time when, you know, so much is like bleak out there that it's like trying to find in a work of art or just in our general life, like something where we can celebrate affinity and connection rather than like disconnection and distaste or dislike. I'm definitely taking to heart right now. And I just was looking through it as we're talking and I, I happened upon, if you need to shut the door, shut the door right now, lock it. I'll be doing that one. <laughs> Let me tell you, I don't even have locks on my doors, but I'll try to get one and just lock it. Um, when well, I read that, yeah. I also was like, fuck, I don't have locks on my doors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's so many good, um, I, there's, there's actually a number of pieces in here that have kind of instructions for this, figure it out. It's, it seems like it's partly for writing, partly for, for living, but there's, there's just, there's lots of generative pieces here that you could use to write. And, and actually I found so many of them incredibly helpful. And just having some game plan, having just something that you set out to do is often such a freeing way to create. So, and we talk a lot about that actually in, in our conversation with Wayne. And um, I guess we should just mention that the audio is just a little funky at times because we had to toggle back between some different media, strange yeah. internet connections, but that the quality of what's being said is very high. So hopefully it will rise above any audio dysfunction. All right, let's get to it. it. Yeah, great. We're talking to Wayne Kestenbaum today. Wayne Kestenbaum has written 20 books. They include Camp Marmalade, Notes on Glaze, The Pink Trance Notebooks, My 1980s and Other Essays, Humiliation, Andy Warhol, Jackie Under My Skin, and The Queen's Throat. He has also exhibited his paintings and has given musical performances at places like The Kitchen, Red Cat, the Centre Pompidou, Walker Art Centre. He is a distinguished professor of English, French, and comparative literature at the CUNY Graduate Centre in New York. And his new book is called Figure It Out. It's a collection of essays. And thank you so much for joining us, Wayne. Oh, I love L-A-R-B, so I'm happy to be here. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice. 
I wanted to start off, something I really like about so many of these essays is that they include partly the process of being written. You write so compellingly about the act of writing itself. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about how you think of the act of writing and what your personal process is like. In one essay you write, when I write, I'm on the verge of physically exploding. And you've also evoked over the years now a trance state of writing quite a bit. But then you also talk about, you know, that every piece of yours has an aura of constraint that surrounds it, which seems possibly contradictory. So I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, actually crafting these pieces and what you go through to do that. That's a great question. Each piece of writing or each painting really, or just like each conversation has its own temperature, atmosphere, set of constraints or liberations. And so it's hard to generalize, but I can point to certain persistent moods or procedures that have marked my writing. And one is, I would say, a posture of late arriving constraint, where perhaps the at the outset, a piece, it may have emerged in a kind of trance state or a state of flow and permission and associational release. But to bring it to completion or to, frankly, to make it presentable, I have to impose all sorts of rules and revision procedures. And another kind of constraint arrives early, which is that to even begin writing the piece, I need to construct it as a game or a challenge. And I need to set up some rules, which I can use then as launching pads or launching boards into the piece itself. Two quick other things. The trance state, or a state of self-loss, temporarily inhabiting void, these are glorious conditions that led me in the first place to pursue writing as a vocation. I still remember so vividly the first short story I ever wrote when I was a freshman in college. And I remember sitting in the student common room and beginning to write this story about my parents and feeling so in a way, out of body, but also more in my body than I had ever been. There's a lot of different states, but there are states of enormous release and flow into language's possibilities or into memory's possibilities. And then there's alternately a state of failing at language, failing to master the bare minimums of presenting a self to the world. And when you say you come up with a set of rules or, you know, the idea of what your challenge should be in each individual essay, at what point are you arriving at those from the outset or after you've already kind of waded in a bit? When do you figure that out? Well, the most flamboyant set of rules that I've ever imposed on a piece of writing was for my book, Hotel Theory, published by Soft Skull in 2007, where for one half of the book is a novel and to bring that novel to completion, I had to cut all the articles out of it, meaning the words a, and and the. So I had written the novel that was part of Hotel Theory already with all of its articles. And I decided that the only thing that would save this book is if I removed all the articles and rewrote it around that constraint. So that's one example. And I think I'm looking at the book right now. And for my essay punctuation, I decided that it would be in 26 sections, one for each letter of the alphabet. And that for each section, I would take a book by a writer with the last name of 
you know, A, B, C, D, E, and find a sentence from each of these books and talk about its punctuation. So for the first paragraph of punctuation, I walked downstairs and I went to my shelf and I thought, hmm, here's a book by Hannah Arendt. Okay, so I will take a sentence from this book and talk about its punctuation. And then I'm going to go back downstairs after I've written my Hannah Arendt paragraph and I'm going to find a book by somebody whose last name begins with B and I find Walter Benjamin and then I take a sentence of his, et cetera, and comment on it. And so I would do these trips from upstairs in my writing room, downstairs to the bookshelves for every letter from A to Z. And that gave me a feeling of cozy confinement during the writing of the essay that allowed me to be more concise and intentional than usual. You know, what I really love about these essays, and you talk about this in one of them, is that, and in punctuations, you do this, where the essay itself has been, it's freed from the constraint of argument, so that you're not approaching a text with an argument in mind, necessarily, like I think most critics might, or that they extrapolate an argument from the text after reading it, and then figure out ways for the text to fit that argument, but that you allow the text to sort of dictate how you discuss it. And then also essentially the constraints become these constraints that you've just mentioned where, you know, you pick a book from your shelf and you explore the punctuation in the sentence. But can you talk about your relationship to making argument in your critical work and in essays and how you think about that? It's an issue that I often confront because I theatrically declaim in print and in conversation that I don't believe in arguments or that I don't make arguments. That's not the kind of writing I do, which is a rhetorical defense because I suppose you could boil down my writing and find its arguments. You could extract lots of sentences and make them the thesis statements. So of course I do have an argument, but practicing in a way the modes of surrealism or divination or of those who believe in magical totalities and synchronicities. I go at a subject with this fervent belief that it, this subject, has a core to which I am intuitively attached. And that if I find, in a way, the life raft that can carry me through to that core of the subject, I will navigate its shoals with the greatest precision and effectiveness. So... Wayne, we were just talking about your relationship to arguments and making arguments in your writing. And you brought up that you approach these things, maybe, or texts in a more mystical, surreal, divination kind of way. And what did you mean by that? Well, by divination in the sense is that, I mean, for anything I'm writing, whether it's a poem, to build up a sense of urgency. And that urgency is sometimes built up by means of research could be if I'm writing critical book like on Andy Warhol, I'm like interviewing people and I'm in library or in museums and ideas are building up. And when there's a certain moment of the highest tension, I know I can begin to write. And at that moment, I may be in a state of deep unknown. I may not know at that moment of hypersaturation what I have to say, but I know that I have done due diligence and that I have somewhere in my mind and body, all the particles of information. And at that moment, I surrender to the urgency. I don't 
predetermine where it will go. So for example, in the essay, Secrets of the Line, I had been, we've all been thinking about points and lines and forms our whole life. I had been building up a certain urgency about this notion that the line in art had some commonality with line in poetry. I didn't know what commonality was, but I knew if I put myself in a state of emergency called composition and started to, I would put together, I would find my argument. I guess I have faith that the neurological pathways by means of which memories and knowledges gather together in a body no more than a thesis statement pre-cooked in advance will ever know. Wayne, in a related note about kind of your writing practice and how you approach writing, a thing that comes up that's kind of curious to me a couple of times is this question of mature writing, right, which you usually define yourself against. You know, I was thinking both like there's the kind of self-castigating, like, well, if I were a mature writer, I would do this, but instead I'm doing this and that's me. And so I want to get a sense from you of what you mean by mature writing, but also to think about whether or not immature writing is a kind of queer aesthetic. Because obviously I was thinking about, just as a quick example of like Roland Barthes' A Lover's Discourse, which on the one hand is trying to be deadly serious but it's also kind of all about adolescent fixation, you know, or like a kind of like passion or desire for others that seems itself a little bit like, oh, I just want to wallow in this feeling. (laughs) So just if you could talk about that a little bit. Most discourses of respectability and heft, be they certain political positions, national positions, aesthetic movements, research styles, of saying things. I mean, just like I've sided always with Gertrude Stein or figures like Gertrude Stein, who was, had a very complicated intellectual life, but she announced in her idiom that it was at a far remove from what counted as history or poetry. And similarly, or like Bart, who sides rather than with certain acknowledged sects, even Marx psychoanalysis, I stand deliberately in a Bartleby-like state of refusal or abstention from those forms of mastery. And I don't mean by saying this to assume the new mastery, which would just be a rhetorical coy way of being more the master by acting less the master, which is maybe like Robert Valser's strategy, and maybe it is my (laughs) strategy. Of course, I yearn for the heights as Valser and Stein and those did. But I know that with my equipment, as it were, I'm best off proceeding exactly the way I do, which is to trust my systems of divination, which again, doesn't mean I'm a mystic or doesn't mean I have a more conscious than anyone else. It may be that for me, memory, desire, and language are unusually and very finely tethered together for me. And that though I have the intellectual life and a lot of ratiocination, however you say that, I'm cerebral. But it doesn't proceed in order. It doesn't go in order. And I've learned since I was a kid, I think, to let myself proceed neurologically along the pathways that are most simpatico and that form my vernacular. Speaking of refusal, it's interesting because I've read a lot of your work And I think of you as being a very personal or intimate writer. But here in this collection, there's an essay called Corpse Pose, 
that is maybe slightly more autobiographical than normal. So I've, I'm not a complete aficionado, but I think this was the first time reading this essay is the first time I realized that perhaps you're from California. So just this hint of autobiography that I would have read so much of your work and not known that, for instance, and maybe I don't quite know that much about your family, as opposed to other writers where it's like in one essay, you just get their entire history and they repeat it often. So I wanted to talk about how you feel about autobiographical writing and maybe juxtapose that against personal writing or the difference between that and if you feel like you evade your own autobiography in your work. I do. I guess I would say I do. I've always, but it's kind of a contradiction because I'm often, you know, I can be accused by uncharitable critics of being self-absorbed or self-indulgent or masturbatory or things like that. Those are things that get said. And yet on the other hand, you're noting, and I thank you for noting, that I'm actually not so autobiographical, that it's hard to piece together exactly where I'm from and that there are a lot of screens and a lot of simulations. And I think that's more accurate than that I am self-indulgent. I know that the core of my work, this urgency or this divination that I spoke of, had to do with, has to do with my body, my family, my upbringing, my history, my tastes, my sexuality, my dreams. But I know that as an artist, I want to go about presenting that body in more canny and framed ways and that I want to proceed first with the sense of aesthetic frame and narrative container. And I'm more interested in the systematology of containers than I am with the stuff itself. So I would align myself with certain, I like aligning myself with the French. I just do because I feel more in sync with them. But the autobiographical world that Genet, Proust, Larisse, Duras, Guibert, Hervé Guibert, Pierre Guillotat, highly autobiographical, masturbatory writers who delve again and again into their autobiography, but do it in a piecemeal fashion, often with a variety of estrangement effects that happen maybe even just through a certain wistfulness or distancing of tone. So I guess, yeah, I've never written a memoir. I don't know how I would even begin to tell anything in order, but I'm always telling stories. It's interesting to hear you say that because earlier you were saying that one of the first times you remember writing and feeling really in your body and sort of outside of it at the same time, you're writing about your parents. Do you remember what you were writing when you first wrote that? And do you think that there is a way in which you transition from one relationship to autobiography to the more current version that you have? Yes. (laughs) I'm going to say yes. Yes to the second part. Yes. In that earlier self, you know, adolescence, adolescence, until I was 22, I wrote maybe in a certain way. I wanted to be a fiction and I was writing stories. I was proceeding in a he said, she said, they said, going in order, and I was blocking it out by scenes. And yeah, it was maybe more like a memoir or autobiographical. I knew when I wrote that first short story when I was 18 that in the process of writing, I could discover things that I didn't know until I picked up the pen. That It was actually the mechanics of writing and the putting together of sentences that opened up the pathways of memory and in a way of self-confidence. 
And so that remains true. But it wasn't until after I got an MFA in fiction writing and decided to kind of stop with this narrative rigmarole and began writing poems, which were somewhat surreal poems, that I started sounding more like the self I now sound like. And then when I went to graduate school to get a PhD and started writing critical essays, I became even more me because I became more autobiographical, but also more ironic, more funny, more fragmented in my style, more shifting in my points of view. And also, I think this is maybe the most important thing, that I became more aware of the intellectual value of my autobiographical procedure. So I had more confidence in whatever fragments of autobiography I brought forth. And I was no longer interested in assembling them into stories. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Wayne Kestenbaum, author of Figure It Out. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Kathy Park Hong on the line with us today. She is a writer, she's an editor, and a poet. Her new book is called Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, and Kathy is here to recommend some books to us. Kathy, what books are you going to recommend? First, um, I want to recommend, um, there's so many books, amazing books coming out right now. And one novel that I'm reading right now is How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. And I'm loving it. I haven't quite finished it so far. It's like a, these two Chinese American girls during the 1800s. And they're traveling through the West, finding a burial spot for their father and it's reminiscent it's like i'm thinking it's like faulkner's as i like dying uh-huh. or cormac mccarthy blood meridian but of course it's a story about chinese immigrants in america and it's just really dark and beautiful and tender and it's the writing is fantastic um I, the other i'm impressed that you can read a dark book right now <laughs> well <laughs> you feel like it's, it's just taking you in yeah, no, most of the time I really can't read anything. I'm having a really hard time concentrating. So mm-hmm. this is, I think the writing is that good that it could pull me in. It is pretty impressive that I'm actually able to read dark books. <laughs> yeah. um, the other book that I'm recommending is also dark, though. Okay. Maybe I just can us. only read dark books, even when there's a pandemic. Maybe and, you just have to dive into it rather than reject it. Maybe you've got the skill to sort of overwhelm yourself with darkness and then you can yeah i know i I was just thinking though like after these books i want to just read food memoirs yeah i have a weakness i have a weakness for food (laughs) memoirs and i'm like i need to just read food memoirs just escape or something or just like read travel books or something like that but uh the other book that i want to recommend is actually poetry it's this new collection called toxicon and arachne by joelle mcsweeney it was published in April, Nightboat Books published it. And it's just really crazy. The language is just so inventive and strange and it's very it's very gothic. It's it's also quite dark and it's also very tender and tragic. It's about the death of her daughter, her third daughter who was born. Yeah. But the way she writes about it is just 
I don't know. It's both tragic, but it's also really wild. And it's not like anything you'll read, you'll have ever read. Yeah. <laughs> so I recommend that book as well. Both dark okay. books. Will you tell us the titles and the authors again? It's Joelle McSweeney. And her poetry book is called Toxicon and Arachne. And the novel is How Much of These Hills is Gold? And the author is C. Pam Zhang. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Kathy. You're welcome. We've been talking to Kathy Park Hong. Her new book is called Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Wayne Kustenbaum, author of Figure It Out. Wayne, did, were you ever made to feel kind of lesser than because you were from the West Coast? Just, you know, mm-hmm. in, in these more intellectual circles? It's just when I, when I think of people like Sontag and, and you, I guess, just who have risen to these heights, but, you know, come from the West, I'm always surprised. Well, that's funny. I love also, I just love the directness of that question. It's so great because we're talking about like writing the body and all these things. And then did you ever feel intellectually inferior because you come from <laughs> California? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of identify with Sontag's distaste for her roots, though I'm not such a snob as that. But I did feel growing up the way I grew up, alienated from my surroundings. But I actually want to, I I don't want to go in that direction with this question. I want to go in a slightly different direction that I did reinvent myself when I moved to the East Coast when I was 18. I did become a new person. I think that I could have easily been that person when I was 15 in San Jose, California. It's not San Jose's fault that it took me, that a certain act of transplantation for me was required. Uh, to go there. I do think that, you know, when I talked about being across the street from authority, as it were, like Stein with baby talk, and Stein also had her time in Oakland. I think that that, for me, that stance of being a, a, a little removed from intellectual authority, even to the extent I assume it, call it Californian. I always say, or I like to think that if I actually were from the East Coast or from New York, which is what most people stereotypically think because of the way I look and talk and it's, and behave, my body language, they assume I'm from New York. If I actually were from New York, I would be so much less of a nice person than I am. But because I'm from San Jose, all those trajectories had to be kept under wraps. All that angularity had to be kept under wraps. Yeah, I actually, um, I feel like I couldn't really talk to Wayne without talking to him about porn (laughs) because he kind of loves talking about his, uh, um, like being a pervert. But so I loved the essay on the punctum of porn, right? And there's a moment where you talk about the kind of how, when we're watching porn, there's the thing that's supposed to arouse us, right? The erotic content. But then there's this other thing, which is like the thing that should not arouse you, right? And that that in, you're kind of saying that this counterpoint between eroticism and say like decor, like the polka dot, you know, drapes in the back are something that actually enhances the eroticism. And I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about that and how you see that kind of operating as like the thing that we shouldn't desire is also what produces or, or intensifies the desire? It's, that is such a, a helpful and complicated question. And I can only answer it with 
paradoxes and tautologies, I'm afraid, but I will try. <laughs> anyway, that on the one hand, the reason I valorize the decor over the sex act in that essay, you could say comes from a disinvestment in sexuality, not an overinvestment in sexuality. So though in that essay, I claim that somehow the drapes or the bedspread or the Coke bottle on the floor or the, or the shag carpet are, are more hot, are sexier than the sex act, than the naked bodies. In another sense, I am fleeing eroticism. I'm fleeing the naked bodies to find a, a neutral habitat and call it an <clears throat> habitat in the rug, the curtain, those things. So I'm enacting a flight away from in the body eroticism. And yet I rhetorically pose it as if I'm finding a higher eroticism. Okay. But, but, but I, and I actually don't know what that is. And I, I don't, but I can tell you, honestly, I just had a memory. I won't go into all the details, but it, it has to do with like a very early, like maybe like fourth grade masturbatory fantasy kind of thing. And I was really aware, of, I think at that point I was, you can cut this if it's too dirty for the air, but it, I, th I was probably like looking at Playboy magazines or something like that. And I was thinking about naked women and I was doing, I was involved in, I think that was what I had in mind then as my erotic imaginary. But I remember thinking at that moment of a, there was a certain pillow near me in the room. And I remember I've always associated that pillow with that scene, that autoerotic scene having to do with, you know, Playboy pinups. And one reading I've always had of that scene in my own sort of psychoanalytic, auto-psychoanalytic procedure is that there was a deflection of sexuality onto the pillow, that the pillow represents the antithesis of desire. But I don't know. And I have always, you could say, been toggling between the pinup and the pillow and wondering <laughs> which is the truer locus of a sane, ethical, or aesthetic eroticism. And I, so I would say maybe there's the pillow within the pinup. Okay. And it's that for that reason that I love these French writers like Duras or Guillotat, because I think they find in, a, in some sense a space of materiality, and you could call it the not human, within the human Wait, is this also about the fact that those objects seem less constructed than the erotic performance? You know, like, for example, seeing like regular basketball shorts instead of Andrew Christian um, thongs. Right. The banal decor around the porn shoot, it's, it's both. It establishes, it's a new zone that you can eroticize the way, like, I think it's very hot when I look at old porn and there's like, really bad outfits from the 60s. <laughs> and I associate that actually with the hotness of being in the closet. And I think like the, the kind of, this, this is such a complicated question, but I'll say one more thing about it that really does matter to me. When I look at footage, say, of uh, pretty gay looking guys, say from the 50s or 60s, say in line for a Judy Garland concert, mm -hmm. and they're being interviewed. And they obviously they're kind of, proto-gay, if not just like gay all the way, there's a kind of oscillation between nerdiness and hotness in their look that for me is the, the most intense 
locus of eroticism. And if I were to write an essay about that, I would not say I have an argument about erotics and fashion or erotics and masculinity. I would, I would go back to that oscillation and that tension, and I would trust the um, language to let me maneuver to a point of um, intellectual purchase, as it were, on that oscillation. Hmm. Okay. Uh, that sounds like an essay you should, you'll, might be writing. For sure. <laughs> I, Wayne, I, I want to ask maybe in, as we move towards an ending um, about endings, because I, it seems like a difficult thing to end a piece when you've moved through a piece, you know, in your distinction, tending more than aiming. You know, so you talk about the ways of approaching argument. And if you haven't had a linear argument and you've been writing somewhat paratactically, and it seems like so generative that you could just keep going, how do you approach endings when so much pressure is put on, on ending? The way I, I usually think of it is the ending is an afterword. That the essay or the poem even in my experience of writing it, reaches a natural termination. And that moment is usually flat, pat, anticlimactic, just dull. And then I know I have to really go away from this piece. I have to revise it from beginning to end. And then on top of it, at the end, I can append a kind of afterthought that represents perhaps a retraction, a mea culpa, a note of wistfulness, or often in my case, either a sudden memory or dream that is at an odd angle to the essay itself, or a punctum, a very material, meaningless, seemingly meaningless detail. And I'll just give two examples. Um, for my, in my opera book, The Queen's Throat, I end with a dream about a steam room and a tenor and it's because I didn't, I think my editor might've said, you need a conclusion or try, and I, I kind of thought, well, the book's over it. And so I just have this one paragraph where I'm kind of meeting my ghostly double in the steam room, who's a tenor. And that's my idea of an ending. And I think in my book about Harpo Marx, The Anatomy of Harpo Marx, I'd gone through all his films. It was so exhaustive and exhausting. And then I thought, well, what do I have here at the end? And I looked at my where at my writing desk and I saw I had this little chestnut that, that a Stein scholar had brought me back from Père Lachaise. And it was a, a chestnut, a dried chestnut that someone had put on Gertrude Stein's grave. And so I wrote a kind of a little Francis Ponge-like ode to the chestnut as my last paragraph of the book on Harpo Marx, where I, I asked the chestnut in a way to be the container for my failure there but as well as a kind of memorial stone on a grave and an allusion to, again, to Gertrude Stein, whose capacities for childlikeness and for volubility within muteness are Parnassian. Wayne, I, and I just have to say, I, I, it's remarkable, something that's really striking me in this conversation, it's remarkable how much faith you have in your writing and in your ability. It just, it seems really rare to have the faith that something will come of it. You know, that I think most, most artists are, well, maybe not artists necessarily, but at least writers approach a task with 
little faith, <laughs> potentially. Um, but it's really reassuring. It's kind of reassuring to just, you know, sort of jump in with the faith that memories or desires or something will, will create something out of nothing. It's kind. Of, I, I would. I don't know if I'm a repressed person or whether I started out life, say, pre 18 years old, being repressed. Associated with my kind of movement, it, you know, my Stonewall generation, period-specific movement from a closeted position to an open position. That there was a, and it's why I think that the work of Adrian Rich in my teens and early twenties was and Frank O'Hara were crucial for me because I, I was somebody who did not know his desires, did not have a language for them, certainly in some, to some extent with them. And so that for me, I don't want to make this a single origin story that it's all about homosexuality or something, but I do think that I, in the grip in my younger years of, it felt like a tech, tech shifts in the structure of my repression with with volcanic bursts upward of memory and desire. And I think that when I started writing 18, I knew, I, I just felt when I write, I can land on one of those pressure points of repression and feel the, the geyser of desire. I'll just give one example. And this was a story when I was a junior in college. I remember just going to a pizza parlor in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there were two guys working at the pizza parlor. And I think they were brothers. And all I knew that I felt, let's just call it sexual desire, but because it was a surprise to me, the extent of that desire, that it was there, that they were look-likes and birds, maybe, and hot. And that I was that there, I could spend, and I, I wrote a bad story, but it was like about brothers and doubles and guys. And it was maybe very D.H. Lawrence and chthonic and everything. But one other example, I wrote a story when I was a sophomore in college about a guy I was obsessed with. And in the store, I cut my face shaving so I could have a scar in exactly the place he did. You know, so what that says, it just says that, like, I, I don't have utter faith in myself, no, but I do have a sense of being ambushed by feelings I didn't know I had. And this happens in all theaters of our, not just the privileged homo theater. And I don't mean privilege, like the privilege, but the, the, the theater of homosexual desire that I privilege in my writing. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. I like yeah, that. very inspiring. It's been such a pleasure um, speaking with you, Wayne. Okay, can I say one more thing? It's been a pleasure. This is just one thing. Am I still being taped? Yes, yes, yes. yes. But I do worry that the internet, particularly DMs, you know, direct messaging, provides too fertile and tantalizing a conduit for some of these terms of desire that I never had before. And I, I wonder if I were just starting out now and I had DMs that I could slide into, I would write a poem. You mean like- If I could, if I, you know, someone DMs and write that, write, if I could just find that, you know, Google the guys that work at the pizza place mm-hmm. and then start following them. well but but in then in that way then you would say like 
so much of you does depend on repression. So you're saying that if it, you hadn't felt repressed in that way, you might not have ended up where you are now. Yeah, I would say exactly. The fact that I assumed that my major outlets would be aesthetic. Mm-hmm. That's it. And that would, that would find the highest satisfaction. That is such an interesting and very loaded question for the present that I don't think we have adequate time to deal with right now. But just to ask you a very quick follow-up is like, do you think that in some ways this is one of the trade-offs of, I guess, like liberation in a sense, which I would never want to say is a bad thing, or perhaps it's liberation mediated through digital technology? Yeah, this is, it is, I mean, I'm pro-liberation if that's Same, for the that's record. It becomes the, and that's the open question of this decade for me in my life, now that I am internet savvy or whatever, and I'm on social media, which I never had been before, whether the fluidities of exchange that the social media make possible are, um, first of all, whether they are uh, a channel away from sources of aesthetic expression, which are more solitary, whether, or whether the news of collective expression where we should be going, or, um, I mean, you know, we're all worried for good reason about what they used to call interpolation, but maybe it's now called tyranny, the tyranny of the loss of privacy and the um, territorialization of our words and images through Google and the like. And I, I certainly fear in this pandemic moment that our cooperativeness with immediately reconnecting with each other on Zoom like this and like re staging a connectivity that's absent from bodily contact and that is entirely dependent on companies, mm-hmm. you know, and the, you know, the internet uh, juggernaut, what we've in the last couple of months, maybe unconsciously just given up. Yeah. I'm not saying we should have offline and not have these wonderful chats, but I think we're all worried a little bit about what have we, um, in a way, as a, as a denial of the traumatic absence that the pandemic set up, the, the, the isolation and the fear that we snapped to via technology to reconnect with what um, blind spots. And I think this not as a social theorist or political theorist, but as a person who f- feels this ambivalence toward the activity. If we had not reconnected with each other through social media and Zooming and everything in this void created by pandemic, we would have, I would have been in the place I was pre-18 years old, mm. back, in, back in a way in a house, in a nuclear family unit without the possibility of networking or contact, as Samuel Delaney calls it, or let's just say like Samuel Delaney we, we have, you know, we're all in the world of networking, but not of contact. But I am not a theorist. I'm a dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems like a nice place to end it. Okay. Uh, not on theory, but on dreams. Sorry about all this mess. Oh, it's fine. It's no, this was fault. great. We're sorry. Thank you, for, okay. thank you for working with us. 
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.